You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Allow me to ask you a question. Can you swim for 10 miles? There are people who can, people who can swim much farther than that, but for most of us, the answer is probably a no. That question informs this next one. Imagine you are stranded ten miles out to sea. There is a rowboat ready to take you to land, but it's filling up with water. On the other hand, you are currently on a very fine ship that could take you anywhere in the world, but it's going to take you on a path that leads to murder. You murdering people, as well as theft and the outcome of becoming an outlaw, or on the other hand, getting hanged. What would you do in that situation? And I mean honestly, put away the fantasy of freedom on the high seas and think about your life as it stands today. A family, friends, a life to get back to. It's not an easy decision when you really have to think about it. But would it make that decision easier if I told you that you would end up rich? An outlaw, certainly, but... There is a whole world of places to hide that probably wouldn't care about your banditry. So on the one hand, you've got a probable death, and on the other, riches, infamy, and possible death. It's not a decision I envy when I take it seriously, because I know what I would choose, and I don't think that I like it. And at the end of today's episode, there's going to be well over a hundred people who have to make that decision and it might not sit well with them either. This is episode 203, The Drunken Boson. 
When we last left the crew of the Spanish expedition, they were stuck in the Spanish port at A Coruña. They were unable to legally begin their mission, or even to leave A Coruña. They were left to rot in the Spanish sun. So a group of men went ashore to demand pay, or maybe just better conditions, or maybe just to cause trouble. And they were arrested. They were thrown in a Spanish jail, without hope of release, probably. Only a few days after those men were arrested, yet another hardship fell on the Spanish expedition. Their flag captain and their acting admiral, John Strong, died. Suddenly he died. It looks like sickness, but don't rule out the possibility of poison here. As we discussed last time, there was a lot of money and powerful interests involved in the Spanish expedition, and for some reason, things had become stalled. Now that Captain Strong was dead, though, another captain from the fleet was brought over to take up his command. Now, normally that would be the first mate's job. It would have been Henry Every's job. But not in this case. The captain of the flagship was going to serve as admiral of the fleet, and they needed an experienced captain. So instead of promoting the first mate, they brought over Captain Charles Gibson to take command. Gibson was the captain of the James, and you remember Captain Gibson. He was that same man we found last time in that Spanish brothel. Pillows and incense and dates and maybe a riot. Captain Gibson was a bad captain. He was a bad man. Above all, his worst vice was a severe alcoholism. So on the James, things experienced a bit of a shake-up. Their first mate, a man named Humphreys, was raised to Captain Humphreys, and one of their second mates, a man named Thomas Druitt, was raised to first mate. This was the kind of thing that any fleet might expect when they were well out to sea, embarked on their voyage, but this voyage had not even begun yet. The Spanish expedition was still stuck in port a mere 600 miles from home, and things were not going well. Now, when we left off last time, we left off with a group of women who were associated with the sailors of the Spanish expedition. We left them after they marched on the home of James Hublon, demanding the pay that was owed to them, and for a few, demanding the release of some of their family who were currently arrested and imprisoned in Spain. But James Hublon ignored their complaints. He brushed them aside. When a series of lawsuits failed to bring them justice, a small group of those women sailed for Spain in April of 1694. Now, we don't know if any of those women were related to Henry Every. We don't even know if Henry Every was married. There are sources that suggest he was married, some from among his own crew. But no one was ever able to find any wife, even when they were looking for her intently. Nor could any historians ever find any marriage records for Henry Every. Later romanticized accounts will have him getting married later on, but we don't know. A man in his position probably was expected to marry, but I think it's possible that there may have been a special someone that ever he did intend to marry, maybe, once this successful Spanish expedition was over. But that's sometime in the future. Regardless, we know that those women who went to Spain visited the fleet of the Spanish expedition, and they brought them news 
from England. They told them all about their confrontation with James Hublon and about his assertion that they belonged to the King of Spain. That's the kind of language that appears over and over again in the record. Not that these men were on a mission for the King of Spain, not that they were even in the service of the King of Spain, but that they belonged to the King of Spain. And these women told their men on the Spanish expedition what James Hublon had told them, that Carlos II could, quote, pay them or hang them as he pleased. Now, this may have been, and probably was, a misunderstanding. Just confusion about exactly where their pay was to come from. All of that intertwined with the diplomatic situation that was arising thanks to the Spanish expedition. There were politics at play. Politics with the people of the Spanish expedition caught in the middle. People who were currently unable to feed their families or to pay rent to survive. And the people who had the ability to change that were either unwilling or unable to do anything about it. However, when this news reached the men of the Spanish expedition that they apparently belonged to the king of Spain who could pay them or hang them, a notion began to spread among the crew that they were going to be sold as slaves to or by the king of Spain. Irritated discontent turned into true fear and anger among the crew. Beyond all of that, though, the topic of Thomas II would have come up. Even were it not prescient to their current circumstances, Thomas II was big news. The Amity captured a Ganjadao, one of the richest prizes in history, and his men were all living lives of luxury in New York. The governor, though, was not arresting them. He was feasting them, he was fating them, and word had it, Thomas II was planning to do all of it again. The question here of print journalism is an important one, but we're going to hold off on that until Henry Every becomes the most famous person in the world. But for now, the print journalism industry had put Thomas II on the lips of every person in the English-speaking world, including these women in Acarunia. Now, we don't know the tenor of their conversations about Thomas II. You know, they could have just innocently dropped off some broadsheets with no ulterior motives whatsoever. I doubt that, but maybe. Maybe it was just simple gossip. Oh, if you heard Thomas II, famous, rich, etc., etc. Or maybe it was a suggestion. You know, these ladies were struggling and suffering back home. And the fleet was just sitting there in port, and even if Carlos II, the king of Spain, wasn't going to enslave them, they weren't earning any money to send back home. But of course the men were not powerless in this situation. They could change their circumstances. The answer to their problems was dancing in New York. We don't know how the topic came up here, but every single book and every biographical sketch of Henry Every that I have read agrees that it was Thomas II's success in Arabia that spurred him on. When I called Thomas II the seminal pirate of the Golden Age, this is a large part of the reason why. There are even those who would suggest that Henry Every knew Thomas II. And it is possible 
Every can be placed on Bermuda. Prior to his interloping slave trading, probably collecting a commission from the governor there at around the same time that Thomas too was there doing the same thing. So it's possible that they met, but even if so, they were likely little more than casual acquaintances. Most of Henry Every's career was as a naval officer in and around Britain, and most of Two's life and his career, prior to his voyage to Africa, had centered around North America. Either way, though, it was that promise from Thomas Two that he was going to do it all again that appears to have spurred the crew of the Spanish expedition into action. There's a story about Julius Caesar earlier in his life, before he was everything that he would become. Caesar was looking at a statue of Alexander the Great when his men saw tears in his eyes. And they asked Caesar what was troubling him. According to the Roman historian Plutarch, Julius Caesar replied, quote, Do you think that I have not just cause to weep? When I consider that Alexander, at my age, had conquered so many nations, and I have all this time done nothing that is memorable. End quote. Now that's a bit grandiose, maybe, when we're talking about some nomadic sea robbers. But I wonder if there was a similar kind of envy, a, you know, a feeling of not living up to his potential that drove Henry Every. Or maybe it was just an opportunity that was presenting itself that Every was not going to let pass him by. As much as any of that, though, I think it was anger. Not just Every's anger, but everybody's on the crew. That they had been so easily discarded, so thoroughly ignored. And they refused to accept that state of affairs. Every and all of the other men on the Spanish expedition began to plot. Now, Captain Gibson Admiral, Gibson, ever fond of the drink and perhaps a bit shaken by events in recent days, Gibson relaxed the rules about men going into town for a drink now and again. This was a good policy, but he chose to do it at the worst possible time. And I can't help but wonder if maybe it was Henry Every that suggested this change in policy. See, as the first mate, it would have been difficult for Every to talk to any of the regular crewmen on board privately. But in the taverns that lined the docks of Acarunia, and maybe in those taverns that required a bit more of a walk, there Henry Every could speak more or less freely to men of similar mind. Now, we don't know who was in on these discussions, and we never will, Every last man who wound up answering any questions about the mutiny, those in the know about the mutiny at least, well, they defended themselves as unwilling participants. Except one man, but that's a story for a different day. We can, though, take some good guesses who was involved in these early discussion groups. Immediately after all of the women from London left the fleet and returned home, William May, the old sea dog we've mentioned a time or two, well, he asked to be released from his contract. He was refused, and probably that's when he joined this inner circle of mutineers. 
everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Another, the carpenter aboard the Charles II, a man named John Guy, was very likely involved very early on as well. There are a few others we can assume. E.T. Fox suggests Robert Ritchie and Henry Adams, two petty officers on board Charles II, as well as an Anthony Track from the James, all of which are names we will get to know in the future. This may have been the cabal that initially formed the very idea to mutiny, independent of Henry Every, I mean. However, of course, they did eventually bring their plan to Henry Every. See, Every was an experienced officer. He was a navyman. He was first mate. He could do the job of leading them at sea, no question. But beyond that, Henry Every was one of them. He was a working-class sailor. Talented, absolutely. That's what led him up the chain of naval command in a time of war. But he was a low-born West Country man. Not some effete noble like most of the officers on board. He knew their struggles. He was one of them which made him really the only man for the job. But whether he was in on it from the start or recruited into their numbers, once Every was in, he was in all the way. But he did have a few stipulations for the mutineers. It was about violence toward the crew, toward any Englishman apparently. Every was going to do it. He was going to lead the mutiny and lead the men. But they had to try to avoid killing anyone. The mutineers all agreed to Every's terms, and then 
they began to spread the word to a lot of like-minded men. Now, some of these were absolutely on board and ready to do whatever was required, but most of them, they did not want to know exactly what was afoot. They were merely content to know that something was happening. Those men were given a signal, a password, to tell them that now is the time to get aboard the flagship immediately. It's all going down. Those men listened, they nodded, and they finished their drinks. They all agreed that they would sail with the mutineers for, you know, whatever it is they had planned. But they were not going to stick their necks out too early, nor did they want to know what was planned in case the entire plot was foiled before it could even get off the ground. But with Henry Every in place, and that inner circle of mutineers, and a large number of men who were ready for... something. Everything. Was in place. The evening of May 7th, 1694. The sun is setting behind the fortress at Acarunia, draping her towers in silhouette and the harbor in shadow. Ashore, the cooper for Charles II, Thomas Joy, is sent word that he is required aboard the flagship. In Captain Charles Gibson's cabin, the officers all gather for dinner. First mate Henry Avery is there, as is John Guy, the carpenter. Henry Adams, the quartermaster, and William May, the steward, would have been welcome too. Second mate David Cray was certainly there. But second mate John Gavitt was not. He was leading the watch. The James lay at anchor several yards away, close enough to hear raised voices from the Charles, but more than a stone's throw. Captain Humphreys of the James is dining in his cabin, while James' current first mate, Thomas Druitt, is patrolling the deck and leading the watch. A bit further on in the harbor lay the pink, seventh son, and finally, the Dove, carrying Captain John Knight and William Dampier. In Captain Gibson's cabin on the Charles, some of the officers bring in a particularly strong punch. Wine, rum, and fresh fruit juice. Just the kind of refreshment that Captain Gibson appreciated after a hot day on the water. And appreciate it, he did, with gusto. After dinner... Once night falls and the quarter moon is lighting up the harbor, a longboat pulls away from the Charles and rows over to the James. Thomas Druitt, on watch, leans over the rail to get a look. From the boat, a voice calls out, Is the drunken bosun on board? Druitt doesn't understand. He asks the boatman to clarify, and that boatman replies quietly, the Charles is going to be run away with, and then rose away. Second mate David Cray is wandering the deck of the Charles after dinner. He pokes his head in to check on Captain Gibson. Captain Gibson, though, drank well more than his fill of punch, and he's out cold. Not a surprise with Gibson. So Cray continues his wandering, and he happens upon a little gathering there on deck. First mate Henry Every, William May, and John Guy are all sitting down 
and enjoying yet another taste of their very strong punch. They invite Cray over to share a drink. William May proposes a toast to the four men. A drink to the health of the captain and the prosperity of our voyage. To Cray, this seems a bit odd. It was a surprisingly cheerful toast coming from a man who only just requested to be relieved. From a man who had been terrified only a few days prior they would be sold into slavery. Perhaps, though, all he needed was a few stiff drinks to lift his spirits. So Cray raises his own mug and arousing here, here, and drinks down his punch with the rest. At just that moment, the captain of the Dove, John Knight, hails Thomas Truett aboard the James. Some of his crew, he says, had taken a pinnace without permission. Now they were nowhere to be seen. So Druitt rushes to Captain Humphrey's cabin and alerts him that something is amiss here. Humphreys orders Druitt to man their own pinnace and make their way to the Charles to warn them that a mutiny may be afoot. Druitt rushes outside and orders anybody nearby, and there are quite a few, into their own boat immediately, including a fresh-faced young man named William Bishop. Shortly after their boat pushes off, all twenty-five men except Druitt, draw their sabers and throw the second mate into the water. So Thomas Druitt swims back to the James, climbs aboard, grabs a nearby pistol from one of the mariners and fires a shot at the pinnace. He doesn't hit anybody, but he does put a hole in the boat. Aboard the Charles, there are plenty of men on watch. However, they have all been hand-picked for this particular shift. Everyone except for John Gravit leading the shift. When Gravit sees a pinnace approaching, he prepares to raise the alarm with the bell, but in the nick of time, John Guy wraps one of his hands around Gravit's throat, pulls him from the bell, pushes him against the mast, and claps a pistol to his chest. Gravit is stunned, and they take him below decks where he is put under guard. Captain Humphreys, aware that his man has been thrown from their pinnace, hails the Charles. He warns them that a pinnace is headed their way with mutiny in mind. The helmsman, a voice that Captain Humphreys recognizes, Henry Every. Every replies, I know that well enough. This is proof to Humphreys' mind that a mutiny is underway and that Henry Every may be involved. He orders the James to open up their sail. Meanwhile, the pinnace from the Dove has arrived at the Charles, and with it, enough men to set their own sail. The mutineers climb the rigging and get to work. Henry Avery is at the helm, and John Guy sprints down the deck with his axe, cutting anchor cables as he goes. Thomas Joy, who was asleep in his cabin, rouses at all the commotion. He's confused as to what's going on, so he walks on deck and confronts John Guy, who is rushing around. Guy turns to Joy, brandishes his axe, and threatens to cut off Joy's leg if he interferes. Thomas Joy retreats back to his cabin. Finally, the pinnace from the James pulls up alongside the Charles, ties her up, and all of the men clamber aboard the flagship. 
Now, with a full complement of mutinous sailors aboard the Charles, they were ready to depart. But just as John Guy cuts the last anchor cable, the James pulls up alongside the Charles and fires two shots across her bow. Henry Every had planned to put most of the crew ashore there in Acarunia, but that shot not only proved Captain Humphrey's willingness to use force and to damage the Charles, which Every could not have, but it roused the watch on the docks, the Spaniards who were guarding them. Every's opportunity to let his men off there at Acarunia had passed. He had no choice but to run. So the mutineers open up full sail. They catch the wind. And finally, they get to see just what this frigate is capable of. Her speed is incredible. She cuts through the water, flying past ships at anchor and leaving the James in her wake. Within moments, she is out of the harbor and headed into the open Atlantic Ocean. The mutiny aboard Charles II is unique for a lot of reasons. For our purposes in the greater story of pirates and piracy, it's unique because we have so much information on it, mostly testimony from all of the sailors who survived, thanks to Henry Every's orders. We have all that information, and we can give an almost play-by-play account of the whole night. And that night was far from over. From the moment that that boatman asked if the drunken bosun was on board, to the moment that the Charles II slipped out of the harbor and into the ocean, that took only about twenty minutes. Everything about this was happening fast, and the ship, well... The Charles II really lived up to her reputation. She was an amazing vessel. The James, the Dove, a host of harbor patrol vessels all chased after her in full sail as fast as possible. But none of them ever even got close to the Charles II. She was three leagues or about ten miles out to sea in record time. But remember that Captain Gibson, former... Captain Gibson, was still aboard, as were second mates David Cray and John Gravitt, and that Cooper, who was so mysteriously summoned to the Charles, and the Doctor, Thomas Joy, and an entire crew that was not in on the mutiny, who, if everything had gone according to plan, were supposed to have been left in Acarunia. But in all the action, Charles II had to flee, so here they were ten miles out to sea. And the only boat that Charles II had managed to bring with them had been shot through the hull. So can you swim for ten miles? A lot of men were about to have to take that into consideration, to plug it into their equation about what to do, and many of them made decisions that in the future would not sit well with them. That story is full of lies and betrayals and, surprisingly, chivalrous deeds, all of which have been examined and argued about for centuries. It's a big story. So we're going to end it there today and tell the story of the rest, or perhaps the other, mutiny aboard the Charles II next time. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever you listen to the show, and everybody who has recommended us, you all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.